we have been preaching through the Ten Commandments here at Kish, and as we come to the Seventh Commandment, I feel a special weight this morning because of some of what we're diving in to. Jordan actually said, you know, this is Youth Sunday. Do you want to, like, change around the order? And my response was, well, I kind of want to, but you just sometimes trust that the Lord is sovereign and knows what he's doing and how he orders these things. But let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father God, it is a good but heavy thing to have your word that you speak to us. So I pray that all of us might treat it with the weight that it deserves. I pray that you would be with me as I seek to proclaim it. We are all sinners, Lord, that sit under it. I am a sinner as I preach it. And so our hope is that you are at work saving sinners. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Since we're talking about the seventh commandment, that means we are talking about sex. And um, since that's what we're going to be discussing, I want to just say a couple things up front before we dive into the sermon. And one is that that means we're going to talk about the topic directly. Some Christians have this kind of blushing Victorian tendency to feel like they need to use euphemisms and avoid saying anything directly about that topic. And the Bible does not share that conviction. It talks very directly about it in many places, and so we are not going to do the thing where we act like 12-year-olds and giggle and use weird, you know, phrases to say it. God made us sexual beings, and sexuality is a normal part of our humanity. Second, we are going to be talking about some parts of God's law that are challenging to us, to all of us. Plenty of what scripture says about sex is challenging to our culture. Plenty of it is also challenging to us as Christians. And my job as a preacher is to say what the Bible says about that topic, even though there will be times that some of it's challenging. But because of that, we're going to do something kind of different this morning. After the service this morning, after we give people time to kind of come out to leave the sanctuary as they want to, on the kind of specific challenging topics, we do not have time, right, in a sermon to fully kind of go into that. So I will hang out up here, and if you want to ask questions or discuss those things further, we're going to invite you, feel free to hang around, and we can talk about that stuff. And then third, um, we're discussing that, but we need to discuss the topic of sexuality as Christians, which means we need to discuss it in the context of the gospel. Sexual sin is no different from other sin, in that we are all guilty of it, and we all need Jesus' grace to cover it. We are not saved because we are good people, but by God's mercy worked in Jesus. And unfortunately, there are churches that act like sexual sin is somehow different from other sins in that way. And so, just know, as we dig into these things, if this is a topic where you feel a particular level of shame and guilt, well, we have to kind of walk through what God commands in Scripture and feel the weight of that. There is good news coming. And, um, yeah, just let your heart be comforted by that um, this morning. With that said, here's what we're going to do. First, we're just going to talk about what sex is in the Bible. Then we're going to talk about what Scripture says about sexual sin and this commandment. And then we're going to use our reading from Hosea to explore the beautiful truth of the gospel— which, as we'll see when we read how it puts it, is that we are all whores. But that's a good thing, because God's story has always been about marrying a whore and making her his wife. First, we're going to talk about sex. 
And we need to say up front and be very clear about the fact that the basic truth about sex in the Bible is that sex is a good and beautiful thing. Sex is good. It's right there at the beginning of the Bible. God creates Adam, and then he creates Eve, and Adam wakes up and sees her for the first time and gives this poetic prayer. And then we're told in Genesis 2, and this gets read all the time at weddings, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. When it says they became one flesh, that it does not say they became one soul or something, right? It is about more than just sexual union. That is primarily a physical image of them being joined together sexually. And if we miss that, the very next verse then stresses they were naked together and unashamed. And that's hardly the only place that the Bible sees sex as a good thing. The best example of it is in the Song of Songs, which is this book of Hebrew poetry in the middle of the Bible, which is a love poem, and in many ways an erotic love poem, which is not something, if you haven't read it, that we're used to thinking about in the church. But let me just, like for example, chapter 4 of the Song of Songs. The husband starts praising his wife's physical beauty, and he starts walking his way down her body, and he uses ancient Israelite images, some of which don't make as much sense to us, maybe, if I told Elizabeth that her hair was like a flock of goats leaping down a mountain. I mean, she probably wouldn't resonate, but it's all praise of her physical beauty, <laughs> right? And, and then he goes on, we'll pick up in the middle of that, he says, Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle, that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. Or a little later in the chapter, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, and the fragrance of your oils than any spice. Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. Or in the next chapter, which is in the voice of the wife, dreaming about her husband, I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it on? I had bathed my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand through the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So look, you don't have to have gone to seminary to know that that is about sex, right? It is about uh, this husband and wife reveling together in the physicality and goodness and playfulness and delight of um, their bodies. And some of us feel really uncomfortable reading that in church, but that should remind us, as it kind of reminds me as I had to read it, that that means that we are more prudish than God who put it in his word. There is nothing shameful about the reality that humans have sex. Scripture is not ashamed of it and celebrates it. And it is not somehow carnal or inappropriate. It's not a result of human sin, importantly. Some people seem to think about it that way. Adam and Eve enjoyed each other that way in the garden, and husbands and wives are actually commanded in Scripture to enjoy each other sexually. Consider Paul's words to the church in Corinth. He says, But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Two things about that. One, and this was revolutionary in the world of the Bible, is that that sees both husbands and wives as active participants in sex that have rights to enjoy it and desire for it. And two, is that that is a command. They are commanded to serve and enjoy each other sexually. So sex is good. It is also meant by God to serve his good purposes. And that's the second thing we need to recognize about sex in the Bible. Um, Because we have to understand what it's for before we can kind of talk about the idea of things that God says are sinful. Scripture views what we do physically as deeply connected with what we do relationally and spiritually. That's the core thing we have to recognize. Scripture views the physical as deeply connected with the relational and spiritual. You can't pry those things apart. Our bodies are a part of us, our minds and our souls are a part of us. And so sex is the most physically intimate thing that we can do with our bodies. And it is intended in God's design, therefore, to serve the most intimate of human relationships, which is marriage. That the pleasure and union of sex is meant to express and strengthen the spiritual and relational union that exists within marriage. It's meant to go along with that kind of commitment and covenant love. And that is, incidentally, why God made sex the means through which human beings have babies. I don't know that we think about it that way, right? But God could have made those two separate things. And the reason that those things are joined together is not because sex is only about procreation. Like we saw in those readings earlier, right? Clearly, Scripture celebrates other things about sex. But it is that Scripture views having children as an overflow of that kind of union of two people in marriage— And he links sex to that because normatively, obviously there are people that because of the brokenness of our world aren't able to have children in those ways, and that is a tragic result of sin. But the norm in our world is that that's because sexual union and relational union is meant to overflow in the kind of love and connection of that to create a family. So that's where we have to start, that sex is good, and God gives it a good purpose in the world. And then that is where we turn to this commandment and recognize that scripture speaks to the idea of sexual sin. So let's start with the commandment. It's another brief one like last week's. It's you shall not commit adultery. So if you've been with us for our prior sermons on the Ten Commandments, what we know is that each commandment takes a certain sin that it sees as sort of prototypical. It sees it as sort of representing the most obvious, direct kind of violation of this part of God's will. And then, as you follow through scripture, it rolls that out to include other things. So first of all, the immediate thing that the commandment speaks to is adultery, when someone who is married has sex with someone other than their spouse. Why is that wrong? Well, because of what we said already, that it breaks the union between the physical and the relational and spiritual that in adultery we are acting out physically with someone that isn't our spouse, this thing that we have promised to our spouse relationally and emotionally, and that violates that union. But notice in that 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 means God does not condemn adultery because he's opposed to sex or sexual pleasure, right? Again, that seems to be what people think when they hear this commandment, but um, but God is opposed to adultery because he loves sex and sees it as having a good purpose, 
in adultery is a way that that purpose is broken. C.S. Lewis, the Christian thinker, makes that distinction really well. Let me just read you a comment he makes about sex. He says, The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and a wife are to be regarded as a single organism. The male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, which is the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude does not mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure, any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself, any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. Already in that quote, we can see how this commandment bleeds outward naturally for us, right? Um, While adultery is the immediate thing in view, um, if sex is meant to be that kind of physical expression of a relational and emotional union, that also means that scripture... Um, speaks against other things, which it does as we read it. So, for example, scripture speaks against sex without relationship. The hookup culture that is so normal for some parts of our world, right? Um, that, um, that, that just sex is this thing that we can separate from the other ways that we relate to each other um, would be condemned by scripture. And it's really worth noting the irony of that culture. Um, if you listen to the world, they will tell you that that, that, it, that, that what they believe about sex is based on a love for sex, that they have this really high view of sex, right? And that's, you know, that's kind of what makes our modern world the way it is. But the truth is the opposite. I mean, the world's base assumption about sex is that we are just like animals bumping into each other until we find some kind of pleasure, right? In scripture, sex is viewed as the overflow and physical embodiment of this deep, powerful thing. In many ways, the problem in our world is not that we are too in love with sex, but that our world does not have nearly high enough of a view of what it is. And then scripture also forbids sex within relationships that aren't yet marriage. It is a normal thing in dating and engagement to want to have sex with each other. And again, that's kind of because that's how God designed it to work. As you're growing closer relationally and emotionally, you naturally have a desire to grow closer physically. But to rush one part of that relationship without having moved forward in the other parts is to introduce confusion and wrong ideas. It's asking someone to give themselves fully to us physically while we are still withholding parts of ourselves on those other levels. Let me just show you that in the Bible, because sometimes people have questions about that. So this, for example, is from Hebrews 13. It says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, two things about that passage. The first one um, is that you'll notice it actually speaks to two sins that it says kind of break that connection of marriage. One is adultery, and the other is translated sexual immorality. So I have had friends who try to argue that, well, you know, like actually, you know, sex with, you know, within dating or something like that is permissible because... You know, the Bible doesn't explicitly condemn it. But that word that's translated sexual immorality, um, which is porneia in the Greek, its main use was to describe sex by people who were not yet married. You know, I mean, so it means more than that. But the Bible does, you know, say that that is wrong. 
But more importantly, notice the logic of that verse. Again, the reason that it says that those things are wrong is because it wants us to have a high view of marriage and maintain the sanctity of that full union of the body and the soul and the mind. Scripture also forbids sexual relationships where God does not condone marriage. Sex exists to serve marriage, but marriage exists to serve God. Marriage is not to make us happy or to give us what we want, but it is two people that help each other together to serve the Lord and create a family and obey him. And because of that purpose, God sets parameters around marriage, too. We cannot preach this sermon today without engaging in a discussion of homosexuality. And I really struggle, actually, to bring it up because we don't have time this morning to talk through everything that needs to be said about that debate. And that's actually one of the main reasons. If you want to talk more about it, like I said, I'll hang out after the sermon this morning and we can, and after church and we can visit about it. But three things that just very briefly we need to say. One is that scripture tr- commands us to treat everyone with dignity and respect. Whatever we might say biblically about homosexual sex, the sort of like hatefulness and bullying and things that have been endemic in our culture surrounding that issue are sin. Two, Scripture does view homosexual sex as sinful because it does not serve God's purposes for marriage. Both the Old and the New Testament clearly state that repeatedly. Sometimes people try to make arguments to get around that, but they just don't work. Um, Scripture does say that that is a sin. But three, Scripture does not view homosexual sexual sin as somehow more sinful than heterosexual sexual sin. And that is important to say because often in the church, people will say things about homosexuality that they are not willing to say um, about heterosexual sexual sin. And that is wrong. If you are not willing to say something to your child or your friend who is sinning, right, you know, in a way that is straight, like you have no business saying that to someone simply because they're gay. Again, if you want to talk more about that topic, let me know after the service. So this is already hard stuff, right? We're having to touch on hard things as we walk through this commandment. And it only gets harder and closer to home as we keep going. Remember, if the first rule about the commandments is that they cover kind of a category of sin, the second rule is that the commandments also call us to, um, to obey God in our hearts. It's not just about our outward actions. And in the case of the seventh commandment, that means that we don't just violate it outwardly, um, but we also violate it inwardly in our hearts and minds. The obvious way this happens is lust. This is how Jesus um, talks about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust is the entertaining of sexual desires or fantasies. It is not the same thing as just noticing someone is attractive. Just to be clear, sometimes people ask, right? There are attractive people in the world. You can notice that. God made people beautiful. But it is when you then take that person and in your mind use them um, in ways that are intimate or sexual. Why is that long? Again, because it breaks that God-given link between sexual intimacy and relational intimacy. That fantasy person in your mind is not a real human being. And certainly they're not the kind of real human being that you owe the obligations of marriage to. And the more we live in such fantasies, the more our relationship with real human people gets warped. Mere mortals cannot compete with 
always available, never grouchy, never demanding person that we keep as a fantasy in our minds. Lust is especially a struggle in our current world in the form of pornography. Pornography is wrong because it feeds lust, but thanks to modern technology, it means that we don't need the strength of our imaginations to feed those fantasies anymore. We have screens to help. The ways pornography affects our minds as human beings can be imperceptible to us, but they're real, and they're well-documented by science. They cause distances in our relationships and distort how we view other people. Um, I'll just especially note here, if that's an area of struggle for you, um, find someone you trust and talk to them about it. It is a particularly challenging one to, to wrestle with, and so... Find someone who's a believer, a brother or sister that you can share that with, and then ask for their help as you seek to walk through that. Lust can also include fantasy relationships, even if they don't technically include sex. That's important to say as well. Sexual intimacy and relational intimacy go hand in hand, and so lust can also become the sin of the critical spouse who always compares you know, their, their spouse to some imaginary person or ex-lover that they have in their head. Lust can be the sin of the romance novel. Or the imaginary relationship where you freely share your heart with someone while keeping it hidden from the world. This commandment includes our hearts. And it includes the positive. That's our third rule. That each of the commandments also, as it condemns certain things, calls us to pursue the opposite. And so that means that this commandment would also call us, um, those of us who are married, to love and serve our spouse. There are other ways that it's included, but let me just speak to that one. First of all, that is true sexually. I feel like that's not something that we talk about in church ever, but that passage in 1 Corinthians calls us to seek to love and serve each other within the context of sex in our marriages. Sex is meant to be an act of mutual joy service, and so if that's a sphere where we are just about serving ourselves rather than our spouse, we're breaking this commandment. And it's also true more broadly relationally. The union of sex is meant to be the physical dimension of the union of our whole lives, and so that's meant to call us to teach and serve our spouse in our relationships. Consider this. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, he calls husbands to love their wives the way Jesus loves the church meaning sacrificing themselves for her. But then he says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives and as, their, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. And then if you kept reading there in Ephesians 5, he quotes Genesis 2, about the Adam and Eve becoming one flesh. The point he's making there is that as we are joined together, we are supposed to recognize that what is good for our spouse is good for us. And he's saying the logic of someone who would seek to pursue their good at the expense of their spouse is the logic of someone like stabbing their arm repeatedly, right? And thinking that somehow that's helping the rest of their body. He's saying that doesn't make sense. So when we appreciate even just that, and there is more we could say about the breadth of this command, but when we appreciate even just that, we begin to recognize that all of us are guilty of breaking that commandment. Many of us have sinned physically at some point in our lives in ways that it condemns. I mean, I have. 
And all of us have sinned mentally in ways that it condemns. And that's really been true for each of these Ten Commandments, if you've been with us. One of the things we have said is that that is part of the point of them. While we are called to grow in obedience to each of these Ten Commandments, each of them also comes to us in a way that is meant to convict us of our sin. But on this commandment in particular, as I mentioned at the beginning, the church has often done an especially poor job of communicating that truth. Plenty of pastors have tried to fearmonger and beat people up as if they can just sort of force them into conformity to God's sexual will through guilt and shame. And that is wrong. While we are called to pursue that growth, the reason these commandments convict us of our sin is because they are meant to call us to see that our need is the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to spend a little extra time this morning proclaiming that gospel to us through the lens of our sexual sin. And to get there, we're going to talk about the first couple chapters of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. But before we dive into that, I'm going to say two things. One is that this passage and several parallels in Scripture use language that is intentionally offensive. And I'm going to go ahead and use that language because God says it, and I'm going to take that as an indication that I ought to as well. And two, these chapters contain one of the most beautiful proclamations of the gospel I know. And uh, it changed my life in many ways when I first encountered it in my early 20s. With that said, we're going to start diving into Hosea. We're going to start in chapter 1. And I'm going to switch to the English Standard Version, another translation, because the NIV that we usually put on the screen actually um, renders this language um, more politely than it is in the Hebrew, and the ESV doesn't. But here's how the book of Hosea starts. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So God comes to Hosea and says, go take a wife of whoredom. Marry a whore. And what does that mean? Well, directly it means a prostitute. Hosea is sent to marry a prostitute and not notice a woman who used to be a prostitute. It is in the present tense. It's her current profession. When it says, have children of whoredom, that means have kids and don't know whether you're actually their father. And just to be clear about what's going on here from the last part of that, Hosea's prostitute wife is meant to represent us, all right? We as God's people are the whore. God created us for perfect, intimate relationship with him. He loves us and made us in his image and gives us every good thing. And in response, we forsake that relationship and chase after other lusts. We chase after pleasure and money and fame self-righteousness and all these things that sin offers us in the world. And in that, we commit adultery against the Lord. Now, on one level, that's an image of our sin before we are saved, right? We often try to emphasize God does not save us because we are good or righteous. He does not marry us because we are beautiful, virginal, successful, young, you know, things. He, um, He marries us, knowing full well the places we've been, But importantly in Hosea, it's also an image of us in the present, after we are saved. If you keep going in Hosea, here's what happens. The prophet marries this woman named Gomer, and he seeks to love and provide for her. 
and they have children together that are maybe or maybe not Hosea's children. And eventually then Gomer leaves Hosea and runs off with other men and goes back to prostitution. And then here is what God commands Hosea to do in chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, God says, go back and love her again, even though she has abandoned you again. And so Hosea goes, and at this point, Gomer has become a slave, because it's a common thing that would happen to prostitutes in the ancient world and in our world. And so Hosea pays for her freedom, and it says, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley, which to be clear is a lot of money. And then he buys her and then pleads with her. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be with you. So he buys her back and pleads with her to give herself to him and offers himself to her in love. If you're following along, God marries a whore, us, even though we are faithless. And then we are still faithless. Even after he saves and gives himself to us, we still sin and are adulterous and violate that relationship. And God's response is to pursue and continue to buy us back and offer himself to us in love. In Hosea 2, in between those two chapters, there's a poetic retelling of the same story. It pictures Israel's faithlessness, and it pictures God allowing them to experience the consequences of their sin. But then it ends with this promise of God's love returning. Listen, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And a few verses later, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God's response to our whoring is to allure us and speak tenderly to us, to marry us again in righteousness and mercy and faithfulness and make himself known to us. If you've been around the church, one of the analogies you might have heard for the church is that we are the bride of Christ. I don't know if you've heard that thrown around. Um, And that's a biblical image, but the thing is that image comes from Hosea 1 and 3 and from parallel accounts in Jeremiah 3 and Ezekiel that, that do this exact same thing, right? The bride of Christ is not, in scripture, some blushing, innocent girl who deserves to wear white on her wedding day. The bride of Christ is a whore, who he is dressed in spotless robes and given himself. That is the lens through which scripture understands the work of Jesus. The work of Jesus is God's great buying back of his prostitute wife. He dies for us to pay our price to rescue us from our slavery and our false lovers, and he pursues us with his Holy Spirit, even in our adultery and our faithlessness. We whore around and humiliate and wound our husband, and he takes those wounds and bears them for our salvation. Jesus loves and came to save us in that role. The great crime of those harsh, hypocritical so-called Christians who shake their finger about sexual sin is not that they call it sin. It's maybe not even that they use words like whore. The problem is that they do not say what the Bible says, 
which is that Jesus loves and came to save whores and not self-righteous people like them. Sexual sin, like all sin, is a real and serious evil. It damages the world. It damages our souls as we indulge in it. And we do need to recognize that fact and seek to grow in faithfulness to God's commands. But the danger in any discussion of sin, and especially, I think, in sexual sin, is that we lie to people about God, even as we tell them the truth about what he commands. The story too many churches and preachers tell is that they are good people and faithful And you out there, you're the sinners, right? And you're the whores, and God loves us, and God hates you, and the only way to get God's love is to clean yourself up and work really hard, and then maybe someday you'll deserve it like we do. And that message, as much as there are people on TV and in churches this Sunday preaching it, is from the pit of hell. It is the opposite of Christianity. I remember hearing a pastor once put it like this. He talked about an experience he had when he was a college student at an evangelical youth group. The pastor, um, the preacher there, gets up and gives this sermon about abstaining from sexual immorality. But what he does at the beginning of the sermon is he holds up this rose, right, this brand new rose, and he, he smells it and he touches it and talks about how beautiful it is. And then he throws it out into the audience and it's like, you know, feel this, smell it, you know, check out this rose. And then he starts giving this legalistic sermon about sex that's all, don't get syphilis and don't be a slut. And at the end of it, as his denouement... What he does is he has them, like, throw the rose back up after hundreds of people have looked at it and handled it, right? And, of course, that rose is bruised and battered and broken at this point. And he holds it up, and he says, this is what sexual immorality will do to you. Do you want to be like this rose? Who would want this rose? But the answer in Scripture is Jesus, right? That is the whole point of this thing. That Jesus wants that rose and loves it and died to make it his own. If you don't understand that, you haven't understood Christianity. Friends, we are faithless, adulterous whores in Scripture who have left our loving husband and prostituted ourselves with all the sinful pleasures of this world. But God is a God who loves that whore and buys her back over and over. And he does not care where we have been, and he does not care where we're going to end up in the future. In fact, he knows those things, and nonetheless, he says, I will allure them, and I will speak tenderly to them, and I will marry them again and betroth myself to them forever you don't understand that, like, that is where we have to start. If you don't hear that reality of our sin and God's unbelievable, undeserved grace, if you don't feel the truth of that and the beauty of that down in your guts, if you, if you hear Scripture call us whores and think, well, I don't, you know, I mean, I, I don't know that I would go along with that. That is the place we have to start. To be a Christian means that we openly bear the reality of our sin, that we hold up our hand and confess, I am a sinner. I am faithless and far more evil than I realize. But we openly do that because only on such a hand does God place the ring of his promised grace. Only the whores get the white robes of forgiveness and the delight of their perfect husband, Jesus. If you don't believe that story, start marinate your heart with the mercy and love that it proclaims. And recognize that's a story that you're being called to enter into. When Christians proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus, they talk about 
repenting and believing. And that's what that story invites us to do. To repent, meaning to own and name our sin for what it is. To acknowledge our adulterous hearts and the ways we are faithless and the stain of our rebellion against God and grieve them. And then to believe, turn to his name, and and call him what he truly is. Our lover and our Lord haven't made that your story, start there. Repent and believe. And then if you have made that your story, do seek obedience. Fight against the faithlessness and lust and selfishness in your heart and seek to follow God. But here's the difference. Do not seek obedience because somehow now you think that you can clean yourself up and deserve his love. You never will. He does not care. Rather do it Lord and lover displays such a love for us that the least we can do is seek to respond with love for him. He loves us even in our faithlessness. Let's live out of the joy of that fact. Let me pray. Lord, I come before you this morning as a man who does not stand on his own merit or his own spotlessness, but who stands only in the love Jesus Christ. Lord, all of us come to you that way. Teach us to grow in faithfulness. Teach us to turn aside from the false lovers of this world. But do it because we have experienced the deep and beautiful love you have for us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.